James Corbett is an award-winning investigative journalist. He has lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen's Studium Generale, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and he's delivered presentations on open-source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation's FOSSA conference at TEDx Groningen at Ritsumiken University in Kyoto. He is the lead editorial writer for the International Forecaster, the e-newsletter created by the late Bob Chapman, and of course he is the host and writer at the Corbett Report, a very popular video news service where he delves into a lot of issues, of course including 9-11. James, thank you so much for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Thank you for uh, for having me on, and thanks for reading that out. I, I've only just realized there's a lot of foreign city names and things in that bio, isn't there? So <laughs> might have to tone it down a little. <laughs> and I've probably helped you realize that by butchering the words so badly, but thank you for... To be fair, I don't think many people would get it off the top, so <laughs> don't worry about it. I don't know. Some of the guests that I get on here lately, I need to start learning the pronunciations for foreign words because we're getting a lot of people out of Europe and different places, and that's a good thing. I like that this is message is reaching out to so many people all over the world here, and you've been a big part of that in your own 9-11 coverage and coverage and so many other things that are so important. And we're going to be focusing in today on something that I think is hugely important for the 9-11 Truth Movement, the continuing and escalating censorship of YouTube, which is a platform that practically all of us have used at some point or another, is the platform that a lot of us woke up because of back in the early days, 2006, 2007, and now even continuing on in recent years. And they don't like us getting our message out there, so we've got to warn everybody. Krypton is exploding. We need to figure out where to go next, how to keep this information going if the inevitable does happen and we lose our ability to broadcast on that platform. Um, for our audience that might not be up to speed with what's been going on on the internet and on YouTube in recent years regarding this creeping wave of censorship, can you talk about the history of this? Because I know you've observed this and been following this for a very long time. That's right. Well, I have been doing the corporate report in one form or another since 2007, and that's also when I created my YouTube channel, which is probably how most people have uh, encountered my work. In fact, well, I'm not sure anymore, but certainly for a long period of time, the number one thing that people know me from is from a short five-minute 9-11 video that I did on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. So that's uh, eight years ago now. And that went viral, essentially, online. And it's been now watched on my YouTube channel, on my YouTube channel alone, a few million times. It's been uh, posted on Facebook and other places and been seen millions more times in all sorts of places around the net. So that was an example of what used to exist on the internet not so long ago, a mere decade ago. There was the possibility for information like 9-11 Truth to really get out there and become viral. And it wasn't a daily occurrence, but at least it was possible. And even at that time, I knew and I felt that window of opportunity closing, and I started to see that. Because I can recall when I first started getting into put, putting this information online, so around 2007, in 2006, when I was starting to, to encounter this information and starting to find it for myself on places like Google Video, which used to exist before... Uh, before they bought YouTube and then merged their content over there. Uh, Google Video used to exist, and they used to have, I remember vividly, they used to have a top 10 video list on the sidebar of the, 
the main page of uh, content on Google Video, where they would show the top 10 trending videos. And I remember there was a period in 2006 where day after day after day after day, it was mostly 9-11 truth-related inf- uh, videos, but a lot of other truth-related videos, generally speaking. But that type of content was day after day dominating that top 10 list. And then I watched how they started to force that top 10 list into a uh, a category that was calculated differently. And, and suddenly all of these videos about, you know, nonsense about children making fart noises or whatever suddenly became the number one trending video after all these 9-11 videos had been trending for months and months and months. Suddenly it, it changed overnight. And then I remember they, they hid the top 10 off of the front page and then they removed it altogether so that there was essentially nothing like that. I remember back when YouTube used to have a front page, which was, uh, if not exactly identical for everyone, at least was generally the same in geographical locations and there would be trending videos that would organically rise to the top. I recall this because about a decade ago, I did a a, a two or three minute video, just a complete sort of, I, I, I've done thousands of videos. This was one of the least memorable. It was just me sitting on a park bench preparing for a, a picnic lunch with my wife. And I, I just introduced to the audience. I just said, I, I've just watched an incredible documentary. I think you should all watch it. And I was talking about a, a documentary called Children Full of Life that I've promoted on my program many times. I think it's a remarkable documentary. So I just made a little two-minute video just to say, hey, guys, I think you should watch this. I'll, I'll throw the link in the show notes of this video. And for some reason, that trended and went on the front page of YouTube. And so that video got hundreds of thousands of views overnight. And all, all sorts of people in the comment section saying, why, why is this recommended to me? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. But that was an example of the type of freewheeling web that used to exist a decade ago, that does obviously does not exist today. I mean, we've seen, for example, how YouTube has made the front page of YouTube now is personally tailored to you. It's all your recommended uh, videos from your little bubble so that people who tend to watch information from a certain political slant or tend to watch only comedy videos or tend to only watch music videos will only ever get that content. And there will hardly ever be an opportunity to pierce that information bubble that people have created around themselves. And a lot of people don't even know that bubble exists. But even so, I mean, that is the most insidious form of this censorship, the the creation of these bubbles that most people don't know exist, and they can go along completely unaware of for example, 9-11 truth content, because it just simply never crosses their radar unless they are specifically searching for it. But it gets worse because in the last few years, we have seen the wide-scale implementation of search algorithm manipulation, content blacklists, and other ways of trying to manipulate people into not being able to even find this content, even when they are specifically looking for it. And again, I have uh, personal experience with that because I, I recall vividly, I guess it was about a, uh, maybe two years ago now at this point. No, it was about a year and a year and a half ago. Um, Chris Hayes of MSNBC went on a tweet storm about the informationally toxic YouTube algorithm, as he called it at that time. And he started his tweet storm with a hypothetical. He said, imagine you're a high school freshman and got a school assignment about the Federal Reserve. Uh, you watch videos on YouTube all the time. So you go home and put Federal Reserve into YouTube search bar. This is the first video that comes up. 
da, 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 and he shows a screenshot of Century of Enslavement, my History of the Federal Reserve documentary, uh, which as he noted at the time had 1.6 million views. Oh, gasp, the horror. How can this kind of, kind of content possibly rise to the top? And uh, it was particularly interesting because I, I can attest that I don't know about the day before, but certainly in the weeks before, federal. if you typed Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar, it really was the first video that popped up. My, my Federal Reserve documentary was the first video that popped up. As soon as Chris Hayes did that tweet storm, the very next day, you type Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar and Century of Enslavement is not available anywhere. It literally does not show up in the search results. You scroll down and down and down. It's not there at all. In fact, now it's the Federal Reserve YouTube channel, it's the MS, uh, MSNBC or ABC or mainstream information about it, mainstream documentaries, but uh, alternative content is nowhere to be found. So I, I, I saw that. I, I saw that happen. People let me know, obviously, when Chris Hayes was tweeting about it and, and things like that. So I, saw, I watched that happen in real time. And then several months later, it was all sort of doubly confirmed. Um, in fact, Breitbart, of all places, wrote an article confirming through the uh, YouTube Google insider, Zach Voorhees, um, and the information that he was bringing out, that yes, YouTube had created a search blacklist that included controversial YouTube search queries, one of which was specifically the term Federal Reserve was on that um, search blacklist, which they created after the Chris Hayes tweet storm. So I, I saw that happen. I knew that that had happened, but now we have the inside documents that actually prove that that's exactly what they did. Even though YouTube, of course, insisted that they do not screen content like that. They do not um, actually manipulate and to or manually intervene to manipulate search results. But now we know that's, that we have it in black and white. That is a lie. They have created search blacklists. And I, I don't have this offhand. I can't, I don't, I don't have the document in front of me. I would be Shocked, absolutely shocked if 9-11 was not also on that controversial YouTube search query blacklist. And again, I can speak from my own experience, having not only done that uh, viral video I talked about earlier, 9-11 Conspiracy Theory, but having done a lot of 9-11 content over the years, including feature-length 9-11 documentaries like 9-11 Trillions and 9-11 War Games and 9-11 Suspects and 9-11 Whistleblowers, um, some of which, like 9-11 Trillions, has been seen, again, millions of times on YouTube but is now getting increasingly more difficult to find on YouTube through the search bar. And it's something that I've talked about um, a number of times uh, over the years. And every time I talk about this subject, people will inevitably retort, oh, but, you know, it's not so bad if I type the exact title of this documentary, Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve, in quotation marks, and, and put James Corbett and... Uh, 2014 or something into the search, then I can find it on the fourth, fourth page of results or something like that. But the point is much more insidious than that. It's not that if you know the exact right magical search term to search for, then you will be able to find this particular video. It's that the entire topic itself is being essentially suppressed um, because the average person has absolutely no idea who James Corbett is or what Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve documentary is. They've never heard of it. No, the average person, if they are interested at all, would type Federal Reserve into the search bar. And that's the question. What do they find? And we know back before there was a blacklist and when things were done organically based on popularity of content and relevance of content, my documentary was at the very, very, very top of the list. Now it is absolutely nowhere to be found. Now, I'm sure you could make the case, well, maybe your documentary shouldn't have been the very top first search term on one of the major platforms on the Internet. Okay, well, maybe so. But 
should it be absolutely unsearchable? I think we can agree that that's that's pretty ludicrous as well, uh, uh, for at least for a platform that pretends to be about uh, uh, the the free flow of information. And you, YouTube, you get to decide. You get to watch. You promote the you you make the videos. You promote the content. Uh, of course, YouTube has not been about you for very many years. And and so I I relate to this topic very personally because of course it impinges on everything that I do and everything I've been doing, my entire model of how I have been getting this information out to millions of people around the world is now essentially not possible in the form that it was happening before. Luckily for me, I have already built up a base of hundreds of thousands of followers who know me and know my work and know that I do good work and do support it. So I have, in a sense, already built up a base that in whatever form, until they actually start banning channels outright like mine, then that would be a different game changer. But for the time being, I'm still surviving and I still have a a sizable audience. But if I was James Corbett of 2006 in 2020, just coming up, just becoming a a new YouTuber, there's no way I'd be able to build up my platform the way I have done so. Uh, in the past, that they've essentially eliminated that possibility, which is exceptionally concerning to, well, it should be concerning to everyone, obviously, but especially to people who are in controversial subject areas like 9-11 Truth. That's right, and I can remember the old days. I mean, part of my own truth or origin story involves a MySpace page, and I had the idea of creating a MySpace page uh, full of 9-11 Truth videos and just randomly adding people. And I could say, oh, that's annoying, but people have a choice of whether they want to accept you or watch the stuff. It's not as bad as going and knocking on their front door or anything like that. And then I watched as that was slowly neutered, destroyed, after Rupert Murdoch bought it suspiciously, and everybody migrated over to Facebook, and they had limits. You couldn't just randomly add people. You started getting these pop-ups telling you that you're being annoying. Stop doing this. Because they were getting their butt whooped out in the media. I mean, this is an issue that has had no media help whatsoever. And this is something that, because, you know, this idea that I had, everybody else had it at the same time. There's something miraculous about that. And they were truly getting their butt whooped in every way possible. Uh, obviously not to the point where we got a new investigation, but where they couldn't control the narrative, where now they were suddenly scared. And I've been seeing this develop, and I noticed the exact same things that you were noticing in the very beginning of YouTube. They had uh, the top videos, the most watched videos, and you'd always see Loose Change or something by Alex Jones or maybe one of your videos, and then they changed it to What's Hot. And, of course, that's very subjective. Who's deciding what's hot? Some executives at YouTube. And I know that was a a way of trying to transition everybody away from seeing what's most viewed because what everyone was viewing was these very important and pertinent issues to our times. I don't think they counted on that. I don't think they counted on people like yourself and uh, the people at AE911 Truth being formed, coming up, and actually putting this much effort and energy into an issue like September 11th and all the other great issues of our day. I'm sure everybody listening to this show can come up with examples off the top of your head, but to you, what are the most striking examples of people that you have seen get their YouTube channels deleted or get their videos pulled off in the recent years? Well, I suppose the one that the ones that stick out to me are the ones that are, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, what do you call that? Drive-by shootings, in a sense. Uh, I, I, I kind of almost expect that this is coming for people in the independent media who are touching on actually important and, and sensitive subject matter. And uh, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that the establishment that has controlled 
all the forms of mass media in the 20th century are going to consolidate their control and exert that control in the 21st century. They just haven't quite closed this as yet. So it, it, it is obviously concerning, but it isn't exactly surprising when I see an alternative media researcher getting censored off the, uh, these platforms. But there are the examples that have come up of, for example, the mainstream history professor whose channel was taken off because he was posting Hitler speeches, for example, as part of his curriculum of uh, these are things that happened in history, but we can't we actually are going to ban your channel because you would dare to show something like this, which is just, again, historical information. That's the kind of thing that I think shows a that this is not it's a human directed process, but it's not a human implemented process. This is done by bots that are, of course, completely brain dead and will do whatever they are programmed to do, not necessarily in the way that the programmers intended them to do that. So it will take out uh, sort of uh, stand bystanders or whatever you want to call it. But also that's the kind of thing that is most likely to uh, to wake up people who are not already involved in this fight, in this information war, which is essentially what it is. People who do not realize that will start to realize it when they see that, oh, this mainstream history professor just got his channel taken down. Why? What's going on? I think that's the kind of thing that, in a sense, it's the kind of overreach that in a way is actually good because it at least brings this issue to the to the forefront and to the attention of people, which I think is the most important part of it, because it's until it starts affecting people personally, that most people will probably, A, not know it exists, and B, if they do, probably not care. It's when they start to see it, oh, oh, there might be, there might be bigger problems to this. Hey, what does, it, what does it mean? And when people start to reflect on the idea of channels or, 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 or platforms being taken down because, oh, the, we can't possibly countenance this, then people start to reflect on what that means and why freedom of speech actually is important and why we do need to defend it and why it has been such a politically cornerstone issue for hundreds of years and people have fought and died over issues like this in the past. Why? It's because this truly is the control of reality itself. And that's a hard topic to get your mind wrapped around in all of its implications, which is why it often comes up in fiction, in fictional representations like and of course, here's here's the, uh, the 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 reference that cannot be avoided in a conversation like this, like 1984. Obviously, the memory hole, and he, those who control the the past control the present, and if you control the present, you control the future, or however that phrase goes from the uh, the Ministry of Information. But it is it is obviously true, and the more information becomes digitized, and our access to information is all through the internet, the the more va- uh, vulnerable that information be- uh, comes to the, the the censors who can literally control our perception of history and the world around us by memory holding, not just, not just deleting or not just book burning. Uh, Those things are horrific uh, in and of themselves, but the idea of, of, of censoring search results and making it so that people can't find certain topics of information is in a way even more insidious because it is in a sense programming society itself to not understand that these subjects exist, let alone how to actually access them. And, and that, that is the process through which we are going to be dumbed down more and more to the point where we don't even know, we don't even think to know what it is that we are missing, what is being uh, occluded from our attention. And one thing that keeps coming back to me about this is that we 
obviously we are limited to what the 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 form of technology that we have now and and thinking about this in the way that we use our computers today today where <laughs> i don't know about you but i have a physical desktop or a laptop where i am sitting down and typing my searches into a search engine in order to try to find results. I'm scrolling through the results. I'm looking for the one that I think is most relevant to me. I'm refining the search as need be. But that that, that very form of accessing information is not going to be around forever. That is not an internal thing. In fact, all of the trends are towards dumbing down our devices to become as convenient and simple and easy to use as possible, i.e. taking the control out of your hands, quite literally, uh, as we start to talk about wearables and hearables and other such devices that are uh, coming into view. If you haven't heard about this, type it in the search engine while you can and find out about these types of devices that, for example, will uh, like, like an Apple Watch or something like that. But imagine that technology becoming pervasive to the point where we don't have devices that we're sitting there physically typing things into. We have devices that are listening to us so that we can just say, hey, can, you know, Alexa or whoever, can you tell me about and fill in the blank? And if you say, can you tell me about 9-11? It will, of course, it will not give you a list of search terms and here are the different results and how would you like to refine your search? No, it'll just tell you whatever Wikipedia happens to say this particular day. And that is the way the information is going to be controlled in the future so that we can't even think to search outside the box. We don't even have that control, even if we should have the desire to search outside the box. And that's really the long-term goal of where this is heading and why it is so exceptionally chilling and why people need to consciously think about this because if we are not consciously recognizing this trend as it develops we are going to be starting to literally buy into our own enslavement by literally buying the devices that will take the control out of our hands and that's the kind of issue that i want people to wake up to uh, before it's too late because at the at least at this time we still have the choice of what to buy and what to avoid and there is still some variety in search engines and other such things. There are alternatives that we could support and build up in the exact same way that we build up YouTube. YouTube literally used to be you. Now, obviously, it is not. Facebook, all these, all these social media platforms that have become ensconced as the Internet in most people's minds are, of course, only particular manifestations that only became popular because people supported and used them. Um, and obviously with a lot of help behind the scenes by the alphabet supers, but that's another part of the story. But at any rate, we still have the ability. We are still the power that drives these internet media giants. We still can take that power back into our own hands, at least for the time being, at least while we have the physical device infrastructure to do so. So I think the more the average person gets woken up to this by some, for example, the mainstream history professor, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the, the person, but I remember seeing this after one of the recent purges uh, this year uh, of a mainstream history professor getting his channel taken down. It was reinstated after a few days, but it was the type of thing that made mainstream headlines. You know, what's going on? YouTube is going too far. That's the kind of thing we need more of uh, simply to get people to understand there is something going on here. So they'll start to think of that long-term agenda. Right. And a lot of this with the new gadgets, this is being promoted by selling you all these bells and whistles that are totally unnecessary. I had somebody bragging to me that they can do a spreadsheet on their phone. I'm like, why would you even want to do that? I mean, I could go climb up on the roof and eat dinner, but I don't choose to do that because it's kind of inconvenient and cold up there. But they offer this, and I'm afraid of the day when you wear one of these smart 
watches that it takes your heart rate or they keep track of what you buy and it starts reporting it to your insurance company and now you start having your life micromanaged. And to me, it's like the computers have more control over what happens on that computer than I do. People who have Windows know uh, infamously about the Windows updates that were just forced on you last year and ended up screwing up my entire computer. That doesn't even get into the surveillance stuff that goes on and then, of course, the censorship that you are talking about. And in prepping for this interview, I was watching a video of yours where you mentioned that Richie Allen got taken down, and one of the videos of his that got flagged was an interview with Michael Rivera over what really happened. And in that video, uh, Michael Rivera was saying that he didn't think a particular incident was a false flag, and they still pulled it down because they were talking about false flags. I don't think they even want that term in the public's consciousness. No, exactly right. And in fact, that brings to mind um, Dan Dix of PressForTruth.ca, another excellent researcher who uh, I seem to recall a, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when YouTube started uh, cracking down on all of the, uh, the the sort of Sandy Hook and, and those types of crisis actor type videos. And Dan Dix had a video where he was talking about the, the whole that whole line of research in the independent media and crisis actors. And he was saying essentially that he didn't buy into it. He didn't think he thought it was stupid and it was a blind alley and people were going too far with this. And that video ended up getting flagged by YouTube as being inappropriate, even though he was actually decrying the thing that they were supposedly going against. So, again, I think it shows that this is a bot essentially a bot-led process that's simply going to blacklist entire words and, and, and terms so that they simply cannot be talked about at all. And I think one of, the, uh, one of the effects and probably one of the intended effects of this is, as you say, to essentially get the, the, this uh, nomenclature removed from the, the popular vernacular. Uh, the, the term false flag, it has for me in the certainly in the course of my work that the 12 years I've been doing this has been the touchstone that I think about because I I recall when I first encountered that word which to my memory I believe probably would have been about 2006 when I started finding information about 9/11 and and this is was really the first time at at least the the, the concept was really explained to me in any detail through documentaries and videos that I was watching on Google Video, ironically enough. But the false flag, that that idea was something that was new to me. And I'm sure there was a point prior to that where I was one of the people who said, well, why would the government attack itself? I, I had that mentality because I think everyone does. And, and most people who are not incredibly duplicitous probably do not think of these things and are not aware of the, the history of the usage of this uh, this this term and obviously the technique and the tactic itself. Um, so that has been something that I have watched in real time unfolding over the past decade, going from the, the point where false flag was a very obscure term that was used primarily in independent media by researchers into things like 9-11 and seeing that that term itself become mainstream. And I, for me, the point that I saw that that really happened, it crystallized in front of my eyes was directly in the wake of the, the Boston Marathon bombing. I remember seeing on Yahoo News, of all places, a headline to the effect of, was the Boston Marathon bombing a false flag incident or something like that? And, I, of course, they went on to answer, no, it was not. Well, okay. But the point to me was, it is incredible, from my perspective, having seen, gone from complete ignorance of that in 2006 to it being a mainstream Yahoo News type the headline word uh, in 2000, what was that, 2013, whenever that took place. That, that's an incredible 
change that's taken place. And that speaks to the incredible impact that the 9-11 Truth Movement has had in actually getting the, the concept of false flag terrorism into the public consciousness so that people generally these days don't have to say, well, why would the government attack itself? Most people are at least familiar with the basic idea of a false flag operation and why it is implemented. That's an incredible educational achievement that the 9-11 Truth Movement primarily has been responsible for. But exactly as you say, if they start essentially blacklisting entire fields of study like false flag terrorism so that you cannot use the words false flag and have that that uh, that that video or that that article or that document pop up in a search that uh, essentially takes that back out of public discourse and although we will obviously know what that means our children or our children's children just extend this out a generation assuming the controls that are in place today stay in place and perhaps obviously get tightened a little further, these types of concepts, which are part of the popular understanding now, will slip back out of the popular understanding, of course, to the detriment of humanity. Because if there had been widespread understanding of false flag terrorism at the time of 9-11, there could have been a very different public response to those events than the ones that we saw play out and all to the horror of Americans and Afghanistan, Afghanis and Iraqis and, and people all around the globe. So it's an exceptionally important issue. And again, it's the type of thing that I think people don't really think through to the end. They don't see that, that, that connecting thread of having the words false flag becoming so common and so searched for and, and such a trending thing that Yahoo News feels compelled to write some sort of clickbaity headline about it when in the event of some incident to being literally unsearchable. That is a very worrying proposition and development. And that's the type of thing that these bots, I think, are essentially doing is creating the environment where uh, certainly, I mean, YouTubers now know there are certain Certain phrases or certain words you shouldn't include in your metadata. You should use a code word to talk about 9-11 truth or something. I don't play by those rules because I've, I've just never given any thought to that type of metadata. Can I manipulate it so I get this ranking higher or that kind of nonsense? Because essentially, I jump through enough of those hoops and you're doing the, the censors work for them. And I don't want to participate in that. In fact, I would prefer to be the example of, okay, this is a guy who talks about 9-11 truth in a reasonable and coherent way, and he has lots of facts to back it up, but he's clearly being censored. This is a bad thing. I want to be that canary in the coal mine so that people start thinking about these issues in a deeper way. That's right, and I don't want to get involved in any of that either. I'm just going to keep this show like it is, bringing on interesting guests, and I think that that is what people really want out there. If they wanted the status quo, they would have kept on watching television and they would have kept on listening to the regular AM talk radio and they wouldn't have been going to the internet to watch some 20-year-old grainy VHS tape of a guy talking about the Federal Reserve or whatever issue that goes on for an hour and maybe is not the best well-edited but has a lot of good information. That was the kind of stuff that was really popular in the beginning and now we've seen that pulled down. I have a hard time finding some of those original videos now. It's almost as if they didn't exist. In fact, I was trying to find a video, uh, the one where Jonathan Cole does the backyard experiments creating his own uh, thermitic box cutter to cut steel beams. I was trying to help a volunteer with an article and I actually had trouble finding this thing that I've looked up a million times. I got it finally, but... Yeah, I encounter that in my research all the time. And in fact, uh, let's just do an experiment right now, because what you just said there really struck home with me. And I, I wonder, one of the things that really um, 
set me on the path to where I am today. One of the documentaries was The Money Masters, which is a three and a half hour video about the Federal Reserve and, and banking history in the United States. And I remember that video was one of the ones that got me. So I wonder, I just typed it into the YouTube search and hey, there it is, The Money Masters, and you get the third result. So if you know the name of the documentary, you are likely to get it. But I type in, you know, history of central banking, I'm going to guess it's not going to be there in the top search results. Well, they've turned YouTube into a glorified cable box. It's like yeah, if you don't want to sit and watch television all day, you get these little sound bites from NBC, CBS, ABC, exactly what they want you to be getting. And the people that made up this platform are being drowned out. And it's really interesting to see a, a, a company. I mean, typically, if some incident happens where a company is under pressure to make some kind of change in policy, they will usually make a big deal out of it, but do the bare minimum so that they don't have to affect their profits or how they do business. But in this case, you see YouTube actively going after people and alienating the people that made it great. And it makes me wonder, I mean, is it just YouTube that has decided that this is a problem suddenly, or is there some kind of political pressure being put on them behind the scenes? Well, uh, not even so much behind the scenes. I think that the agenda is quite out in the open, and the question of Google uh, relationship with the intelligence agencies is an important one that I have explored in my work in the past, uh, most recently in The Secrets of Silicon Valley. But uh, I think that uh, Google specifically took over YouTube, I think with this agenda in mind. I think the, the writing was on the wall as soon as Google acquired YouTube, which I believe took place in 2007 or 2008. It didn't really obviously change YouTube overnight, but I remember seeing that happen and thinking, oh, well, there it goes. You know, it's going to be consolidated into the beast at, at some point, and here it goes. And I just don't know exactly how that's going to play out. Well, here we are a decade later, and it's obviously playing out. I think that was the plan all along. Um, but this is this is the way that this essentially game of monopoly operates. You have the monopolistic operators who, as I say, do have support behind the scenes from intelligence agencies that obviously work for their own political and, and monetary and other agendas. And uh, they... I don't think that they necessarily create every single thing that becomes popular with the public. I think it's much easier to find the the platform that becomes popular and, hey, we'll take that one. Yeah, okay, YouTube, that's, that's getting popular with the kids these days. All right, that's ours now. And they take it over and they, they shift it over towards their point of view. It might take a decade of gradually changing the system. And every time there's a new YouTube implementation, oh, we're doing this new feature, we're doing this new thing, you'll often see people violently, very, very strongly opposing this and and uh, and making their feelings uh, known. But it doesn't matter because YouTube has never essentially been about making money for Google. Uh, it may actually make money at this point, but I know for many years it was a, uh, a revenue loss. Uh, it was a net loss. But that wasn't really the point, I think, of the acquisition. I think it really is about control of information that is being seen by hundreds of millions of people around the world. I mean, this this is the mass media of the 21st century. And I, I find it interesting. I mean, earlier in this conversation, you did it. I do it often, too. We, we think about things still because uh, I don't know about I don't know about your age, but I'm of an age that I certainly do remember the pre-Internet world and the pre-Internet media, the television newspaper. You know, if you were on TV, that was an important thing. You were somebody that meant something. So we look at things like, well, you know, 9-11 truth was not being promoted on TV, but it still became popular. That's a, that's kind of an amazing thing to people who grew up in the pre-Internet era. 
um, to see how the Internet has essentially surpassed the media. And I think some people still have a bit of reverence for that old school media. But essentially, YouTube and things like this, this is the 21st century media. In fact, I mean, I'm probably dating myself. It's probably not YouTube at this point. It's TikTok or whatever. I don't I mean, I don't even know the different platforms and apps and things that are coming up these days that are popular with the kids. But it's certainly not, you know, the New York Times uh, is going to be the the thing that that captures the, the public's mind and imagination. So obviously, assuming that the the very same corporate and other interests that have so dominated mass media production in the 20th century are interested in maintaining their virtual monopoly over the public mind, they're obviously going to be interested in consolidating what's happening online. And places like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, the main platforms uh, that people are using to disseminate information are obviously going to be the targets. And they're the ones that are targeted to make sure that they are on board with the system or just literally become a sub uh, a sub company of alphabet inc now actually I, I was 16 years old when they sent us a disc it with uh, america online and we stood around scratching our heads saying what do you do with this i guess you put it in the computer or something and that was my first exposure to the internet so that that gives an idea of how old i am but um I wanted to make sure that we cover this in the show because this is what prompted me to go on this whole kick on the show for the past couple of weeks because I'm really afraid of what's coming. Uh, this new purge that has been getting whispered about in every corner of alternative media, December 10th, YouTube is going to change its policy. They could pull videos, channels that are, not, are determined not to be commercially viable. I'd like to know what you know about this and what your interpretation of commercially viable might mean for YouTube. Well, what I know is, uh, in terms of what I know, know, and can document know, is nothing more than anyone else. I don't have any inside information on this. But here's my thoughts on this. I did see, of course, a lot of the coverage of this December 10th, and they're changing the terms of service, and anything that's not commercially viable will be taken down. Well, actually, no, I don't think that's what this was about. And I think... It actually does us a disservice when we all concentrate on, oh, this date, December 10th is going to be the day, man, and you better freak out about this date. Because, obviously, uh, December 10th has come and gone. There was no massive purge on December 10th, and I didn't expect that there would be. Uh, what I saw with that terms of service change is that this is a retrospective – or no, it's not retrospective. I guess it's prospective CYA, cover your ass – for YouTube uh, to essentially be able to take down any channel at once at any time arbitrarily and be able to point to its terms of service and say, well, we determined you were not commercially viable, which, of course, is a completely meaningless phrase. What does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Uh, I, I have a feeling that if pressed, they can and pro presumably will use it even against channels that are making millions of dollars advertising revenue. They can just say, oh, yes, but you're controversial. So advertisers are threatening to boycott the platform or whatever it is. I mean, again, it's just a total made up BS excuse um, for them to be able to take down a channel at will. But I don't think that I mean, obviously, it didn't mean that on December 10th, they were suddenly going to take off every single independent creator on YouTube. No, it's it's I think just the way for them to cover themselves against the types of legal actions that are now uh, coming up. Uh, there was that one that was taking place. I, I, I saw a movement taking place earlier this year. There was a German YouTuber who was trying to form some sort of YouTube union uh, which I think is completely the wrong idea and the wrong approach, but at least I understand where it's coming from. Um, but essentially trying to um, force some sort of legal 
process through which YouTube would allow some union of creators to negotiate and and come up with some sort of mutually agreeable system or what have you, blah, blah, blah. But the point of that was um, uh, that uh, I think YouTube is now worried about the, the threats of legal action for them taking down channels. I mean, we're we're in very uncharted territory here, and who knows how this is all going to play out, especially now that there are there is increasing talk about various uh, forms of uh, governmental investigation and panels, and should we break up the Internet giants? So I think they want to cover themselves legally in every way possible. I think this is just another aspect of that. So I think concentrating on this date or that date is not only... Uh, not only wrong, I mean, obviously the purge didn't happen on December 10th, but it actually uh, it goes against our interests because people will see uh, everyone screaming, uh, December 10th is the date, it's all coming down, it's all coming down, and then it doesn't happen. Eventually, if you cry wolf enough times, people are going to stop listening to you at all, and I think that's 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 the worry. The, for me, the, the absolute worst nightmare scenario in all of this is not that dramatic overnight chop everyone's head off all at once, because that would be exceptionally blatant and obvious and would be the type of thing that would wake more people up. Uh, to me, the real scary thing is just that gradual tightening of the screws so that you can't even necessarily say, oh, you know, look, they've just cut my audience in half overnight. No, it's, it's a little bit here, a little bit there. They start to make the, the search uh, engine algorithm manipulation a little bit more tight. And eventually you just lose all of your viewers. And they say, oh, you know, it looks good because you're, you're boring and people don't want to hear that kind of stuff anymore. And look what's popular. It's, you know, children making farting sounds or something. You know, that that's what people genuinely and organically want. And you'll never be able to prove it because it's all a gradual process. To me, to my mind, that's a much scarier scenario than the sort of overnight just chopping people out of the picture. Because, again, as I say, that's obvious. And I think that would tend to wake people up more. So ultimately, I don't think this YouTube terms of service change is... Uh, is important in the sense that it's going to be the, the that sort of overnight culling. I think it really is just their ability to terminate any channel that they're keeping sort of legally reserved um, for wh- when and if they need to do so. And uh, again, as I say, I'm sure that they will use it against anyone, even a PewDiePie or whoever. It doesn't matter if you're the most massively popular creator on our platform of all time. If you do something that it generates controversy and people are threatening to boycott YouTube because of it. Well, now you're not commercially viable. Again, what does it mean? It means anything they want it to mean, but it's a good legal excuse for getting rid of your channel. You actually gave a very good explanation of what commercially viable might mean to them. You're too controversial and so our advertisers don't want anything to do with us, so we're going to pull you down. That could be their justification because I always wondered, you know, what about these people that got uh, a video from a family party from 10 years ago and it's got six views because only people in the family watch it. I mean, that's not very commercially viable. Nobody cares about that video. It's not making money for them. Nobody's going to touch that. YouTube's not worried about that, but I I could see them using that justification. But what I see is it's it's like a rewriting of the law to justify doing whatever they want. When I say law, I mean YouTube policy. And it's sort of like the Black Plague. Like, you see it hitting other houses around you in town. You know it's going to be in your house at some point. And so we got to get ready for this. I'd like to get your thoughts on this, too, because I made a point in previous shows, where they use this justification of bullying, hurtful content to pull videos in the past. However, I can go on YouTube, I can find prank videos where people are being humiliated for the amusement of the viewers uh, by the person who's creating the content. I can find 
humiliating incidents that are caught by people uh, who are not even involved in it. They just happen to be there and they videotape it and then put it up on on YouTube. And then it becomes national news overnight, like it's the greatest thing that ever happened. Uh, and, and reporters report on it. YouTube does nothing about any of these kinds of videos, which I consider to be extremely harmful, uh, even if there's like a video out there that I don't agree with that's pushing a, a theory or idea that I think is complete bunk. I mean, I, I don't consider that to be very harmful if people have discernment and can judge for themselves what is real and what isn't, but I consider the stuff where people are actually being bullied with a laugh track as actual bullying, and I don't see anything happening to those videos. I see them being promoted. Yes, of course. And again, I think that speaks to what this is really about. Exactly in the same way as you say, you know, someone's you know, children's birthday party from 10 years ago isn't commercially viable, but that's obviously not what YouTube is really talking about in those terms of service. They're talking about controversial content. Again, massively popular prank videos and what have you isn't necessarily what they're talking about, although there has been some kickback against some of the uh, the prank videos as they existed in the past. But I get what you're saying. There's There's a lot of on its face, harmful or, or humiliating content that is posted up on YouTube that they don't care about and will not care about and will not crack down on. Uh, this is specifically, I think, in the wake of things like what we saw with Sandy Hook and what have you. And, and the, the, again, the controversy that's been generated from that. And, well, we have to have some sort of response to this. So this is going to be our response. Um, which, of course, brings up the question. I mean, there there are genuine and real questions about actual online bullying and, and, and things that are clearly hurtful and uh, certainly could, especially when you're talking about children. And the, I mean, I can't imagine being a child growing up in the social media environment as it is today. I mean, I, it's just wow. I mean, it's a very different world than the one we grew up in. But um, there are real questions there. Of course, the, the, the underlying question is, well, what do you do about that? And there is there people like to think there's some sort of easy answer to this, but there really isn't. And it seems like there are bad answers and worse answers. And you perhaps have to find the least bad answer. But the, uh, the ultimate answer, of course, is freedom of speech and allowing people to say what they want. Um, but there has to be ways, obviously, for people to to not see content that they don't want to see and what have you, but it has to come down to freedom of choice. And an interesting example of that that just crossed the news radars just this past week, um, up at TechDirt, they have an article on, be careful what you wish for. TikTok tries to stop bullying on its platforms, dot, 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 by suppressing those it thought might get bullied. And it's all about uh, talking about how they created this system for helping people who are getting bullied online by making their content less visible online to essentially limiting their, the spread of their videos on the platform so that they won't get bullied. I mean, which, okay, I guess that, you know, it, it, it's true. Probably it's logical. There will be less bullying if less people see their videos, but then why are they posting it on the social media platform at all? I mean, and, and so is there some sort of magic wand that a tech company can wave in this? Is there some magic wand that the government can wave over all of this? Because that's something that really concerns me with the way that this is trending. So that there are, I think, is the temptation, even in the independent media, even amongst 9-11 truth researchers and others um, who might be affected by these types of um, things, to say, well, then what we need is the government to step in and, and take over these or break up these platforms or take over or institute laws that they can't suppress this content or what have you, um, which I think is exceptionally misguided, because if you think that the same government that would 
actively participate in an event like 9-11 would then go and be the stewards over the system that's going to somehow arbitrate disputes over what content can and cannot be put on these platforms in favor of things like 9-11 truth. I mean, it's just it's the height of nonsense to believe that. Um, but I, I, I get why it's the temptation, because we have grown up in an era where government is the solution to everything. Government will step in and do it. Um, of course, that's one of the main modes of thinking that was completely undermined for me by events like 9-11 and realizing the truth about that. So um, so I think that's one of the pitfalls that uh, has been brought up when it comes to the subject. And I did talk about this in detail in a, a, a podcast episode I did last year. Um, called Problem, Reaction, Solution, Internet Censorship Edition, specifically addressing how I think that this growing call, won't someone step in and regulate the tech companies, is in fact the exact wrong approach to this problem because that is going to cement and solidify the monopoly that these platforms have. And we're starting to see that in the EU right now, which has passed some ridiculous copyright directives, of course, in the name of protecting intellectual property and, oh, that won't someone think of the poor you know, billion dollar record companies and, and others. Um, so in, in order to protect their intellectual property, the EU has implemented a particularly draconian copyright directive that is now starting to be implemented in the various uh, EU states that essentially is, at least the way it's been worded, it certainly could bring in such things as link taxes, i.e. even linking to content, like linking to a news story, you'll essentially have to pay the owner of that uh, story, that, that content, for the, the ability to link to them, which essentially breaks the internet as, as it exists. I mean, it's unthinkable to actually implement that, but there's, there is at least that language floating around in uh, the provisions. Uh, also, of course, things like upload filters to put the onus on platforms to essentially filter and screen content when it is uploaded before it actually gets posted to the platform, which creates an onerous burden on any sort of startup or challenger or platform that would want to compete with something like YouTube, which already has its content ID system in place. Wow, look at that. The main monopolistic platform for video viewing on the internet already has a system that is now being uh, regulated into existence in the EU and presumably might come to the US and other places besides in the near future. And look, the YouTube, YouTube will be able to jump through those hoops no problem because they have thousands of software engineers and they have uh, teams of regulations, lawyers and compliance officers and what have you. They can jump through any regulatory hurdles. But the startup that's trying to compete with them will never be able to do that unless they are funded by some other you know billionaire corporation megagroup. So that is essentially the, the path that we're heading down when we start talking about regulating the Internet. It's going to turn into, essentially, again, the billionaire's playground. Whereas as, the real, I think the real solution to this, the real answer to the question, the problem of Internet censorship is freedom of choice and freedom of users to reject platforms that engage in these shenanigans and move elsewhere. And uh, inevitably, when you raise this, you know, there are alternative platforms. There are other ways of getting information. You don't have to go to YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all these controlled platforms. Inevitably, you'll find the people who are just naysay and say, well, there's no, you know, there's no network effect if you go somewhere else. They're, they're, they just don't have the users. Well, then it's the chicken and the egg problem. But the point is that these 
these and YouTube and Facebook, they came from somewhere. They started from nothing, and they were obviously promoted and I think he- heavily helped along by um, corporate and governmental and intelligence agency interests. But at any rate, they were populated by people who came to those platforms. Those people can leave those platforms. And uh, it's not something that I just talk about. I, in fact, actually did that myself. I had a Twitter um, following of, I think, 37,000 or so uh, followers at the time when I left Twitter about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, because I just I did not want to participate in that platform anymore. Uh, I still do participate in YouTube as a platform. I at least upload my videos there. I always encourage people, even in my YouTube videos, not to watch them on YouTube. But <laughs> I realize that it is still a platform where I still can reach out to people who have not heard my voice yet, at least for the time being. So until they scrub me off. And then again, I do want to be that canary in the coal mine. And I'd love for them to come out and chop my channel off and say, you can't put 9-11 truth information on YouTube. Because again, I think that would be a good learning experience for people. But at any rate, I still do participate in it. But that doesn't mean I don't participate in the alternatives. And I certainly do. I, I post my videos to uh, BitChute and to Minds.com and to DTube, um, which is another pl- uh, platform alternative, although recently I've had problems uploading there. But uh, I also host the videos myself on my own server. Uh, so people can go to CorporateReport.com to download my videos directly. And on top of that, there's also an IPFS uh, mirror of my site that's been created by Ernest Hancock over at Declare Your Independence, um, which, uh, for people who don't know, IPFS is a sort of an alternative to the World Wide Web as we know it. It's a decentralized uh, platform where it kind of works almost like a torrent, more so than the, the type of World Wide Web interface that we're used to. But essentially, you can host entire websites as as my site is now being hosted on IPFS. IPFS. And essentially, as long as people are um, sharing that, hosting that, um, that information will cannot be suppressed. It is a peer-to-peer network, so it cannot be taken down. There's no central server that can ever be confiscated. And I think that's really long-term. That is the, the only real solution to any of this. Uh, the decentralized web, the D-web, as it's, an, as it's being called um, increasingly these days, I think really is the answer to this because the technology is now just about at the point where we really could have a decentralized Internet in the, in the way that the Internet really could be decentralized rather than having centralized servers serving out information that are, are obviously points of control that can be choked. Uh, we are at the point where we can start imagining a decentralized web in the way that I think it really was always meant to operate. Uh, it's just a question of, does anyone really know about this? Does anyone Has anyone even heard about D-Web or IPFS or these types of things? No, of course not. And why not? Precisely because I think these types of technologies are threatening to the power establishment. So I think we have to start, uh, well, I I certainly need to do it myself. I need to start educating my audience more on this technology and I think what the real solutions are so we don't get led down a, a blind alley or a false path of trying to go through the courts or the government to, to try to steward over the system and deliver this information to us because they certainly won't. Their, their interest is exactly in the opposite direction. That's right. We didn't need the government to create the 9-11 truth movements and all the other truth movements existing out there. We don't need them to recreate us on other platforms and to do essentially what we did before and move away. James Corbett, I know you got to get on to another interview in just a few minutes, so I'm going to let you do that and grab a cup of coffee in between. I want to thank you so much for coming by here and sharing your wide array of research 
with our audience, and it's CorbettReport.com. If you don't know about this site, this is where you get your information. Listen to 9-11 Freefall. We only come out once a week, though. You want to see more content, go to CorbettReport.com. You'll hear about other issues as well. But thank you so much for coming on 9-11 Freefall this week. Thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for talking about this topic. It's an exceptionally important one, and it speaks to the work that we're doing and our ability to do it in the future. So thank you for bringing it up. This program is on every Thursday night on No Lies Radio and every other Thursday night on BBS Radio at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific. You can also keep track of the archives by going to 911freefall.com. This is Andy Steele saying have a great week and good luck. <laughs>